Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 19. We will study together verses 8 through 10. First Samuel chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And here in these verses we're picking up where we left off last week. We've had David, the anointed of God, chosen specifically to be the second king of the people of Israel, pursued by the first king, the man Saul. Wicked and jealous in his heart over the successes and the popularity of David. And what did he do in the previous verses? Well, he started a slander campaign, hoping to incite other people to come against David, to raise up arms, and to kill David, the great champion, the anointed new king of the people of God. And you may recall also that Jonathan, the son of Saul, stuck up for David came against his father, defended him, rebuked his father, and so disaster was averted, and Saul took a vow in verse 6 not to kill David. Again, a vow is a holy promise between us and God. And so that's what we've had, and there was peace. And once again, David uh, was in the presence of Saul, came out of hiding, and was at home in the court of the king. And so we take up the text there and study it together. So hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word for Samuel chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was there playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. The word of the Lord our God. May he bless us as we study it together. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we look on and read the ancient history of the leaders of Israel, instruct us, we pray. Help us to learn what holy conduct is, to be convicted about unholy conduct, and to be directed how we might live in this world in the glory and the honor of your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. How do we live under civil leaders who prove themselves to be immoral? Leaders who prove themselves to be unfit for office or wicked. And friends, I just want to simply say that this has always been a question that God's people have been confronted with. In the Old Testament, we have seen God... And his people endure many insults. The church in the Old Testament found itself often invaded or attacked by ungodly kingdoms, empires, or rulers. The church even itself had a Babylonian activity, or activity, (laughs) exile, excuse me, 
Babylonian exile under a king that was in every way opposed to the God of the Bible. And so as we come yet again here uh, in the life of David and the experience uh, that he had under the rule of Saul, you can even see that in the kingdom of Israel, with God's anointed divine monarch, this was a question and something that had to be dealt with. I'd also just simply remind you, church, that the New Testament church dealt with exactly the same thing. And you and I, if we have eyes open and any sensitivity to the world around us, uh, we ought to feel the tension of how it is the church is supposed to live in the midst of rulers that haven't a heart for God nor a mind for his word. And so in uh, the example of David, I think there's some benefit that we can gain, some instruction, uh, so that we might learn to conduct ourselves uh, before the world, uh, even whenever those who are over us sometimes do things that are less than agreeable or even directly against the word of God. And so two things, a two-point sermon this evening. These are not contrasting points. Most two-point sermons are. They're contrasting, but that's not what we have this evening. Uh, The first point is that we should not return wickedness for wickedness. Do not return wickedness for wickedness. And then secondly, that broken vows are the result of unmortified sin. Broken vows are the result of unmortified sin. And if you're with me every week, you might be asking, well, where are my cited verses? And I just want to say to you, both verses are citing verse 8, 9, and 10. So we're going to go through all of them each time we go to these specific points derived from the text of Scripture. And so as I gave the introduction to the Scripture... It should be no surprise that David is in a trying time. Uh, He is the little shepherd boy turned champion of the people of Israel. He's been used by God greatly for the sake of the defense of all of God's people. Yet, even in the midst of it, he's had an angry king, overwhelmed with jealousy. Saul, an anointed man of God that the Lord has appointed specifically for the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. And he has endured not only just the theoretical experience of the jealousy of Saul, but very specifically Saul's attempt to kill him three times. Each of those attempts have failed, and yet nonetheless, here is David. He is a man appointed by God. My son. As a man appointed by God uh, and a man who has been commissioned as an officer in the army of Israel. Not just any sort of army, but he's in control of quite a number of men uh, who are very responsible for the defense of the kingdom. And what we've read is that David has had success after success after success and militarily been very profitable uh, for Saul as king and also the people more broadly. And so in chapter 18 verses 10 through 11... Uh, we had the first uh, example of Saul's attempt to kill David. We read that Saul was assaulted or disturbed by a wicked spirit from the Lord. That in his unconfessed sin, he was driven mad by his jealousy. And what did he do? He took a spear in his hand and he threw it at David. He was playing a liar to calm his soul. He did it once, he did it twice, and both times he missed David. 
Secondly, we see this happen again in what I took to call the bride price plot, where you've got Saul considering how is it that he can dispose of or make use of or control David in his kingdom. And you may recall that he promised to give him first his oldest daughter and then went back on the deal and gave her to another man. And then, in his own mind, he conspired once more and he said, I'll give my younger daughter to David. It'll be simple, David. Take my daughter, Michael. David said, I'm not a man of much means. I don't have any gold or riches. I'm not a man of great station. What do you want from me? And is it even appropriate for me to become a prince of Israel? And you may recall that the price that was given to him was a portion of the body of a hundred Philistines of a very sensitive region, a very deadly mission is what he was sent on. It was one of those things that whenever Saul in his mind conspired to do this, sending David on this, it was as if he was guaranteeing his death. There's no way David will be able to accomplish this task. Yes, he's a great warrior. He's a great man of God. But a hundred men? Not a chance will he be able to kill a hundred men. And so the plot was hatched. David went, he was successful, and he brought back not 100, but 200 and laid them at the foot of Saul. And the text tells us and that Saul was very afraid of David. I would say so. I'd be afraid of a man like that as well. The second failure, feeling in himself that the Lord was upon David and overwhelmed with fear, what does he do next? Well, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, He then tries to raise up others to extend their hand. If he failed with a spear, if the Philistines failed, well, maybe the best men of Israel could succeed. And he begins a slander campaign to undercut the character of David and to entice other people to do his bidding and to kill David. Well, that didn't work. The closest men to Saul had no success. And Jonathan, his son, a great man in his own right, a great warrior also, rebuked his father, brought him into some sense of his sin. And in verse 6 of chapter 19, uh, we see Saul taking a vow to the Lord that no one would take the life of David. And so we might say as we come to this passage of Scripture... Very naturally, David is in a difficult position, an absolutely difficult position. It's an impossible working environment, if you want to think of it in those terms. His boss, his king, the sovereign of the land, wants him dead. He can't really accomplish it, but nonetheless, that's what's happened. And it's not happened just once, as if it was a momentary fit of insanity. Not just twice, but three times over. And here is David. He's a commissioned officer in the king's army. What do you do? How should he act? This is also, let me simply remind you, not just a man who is a commander. He is a man who in himself is an absolutely impressive and fearsome warrior. And I would submit to you that if he could take down Goliath with a stone and a sling, by the grace of God, Saul would be well. An easy target. A small person to then be dealt with. But that's not what we see. We see David behave in an entirely different manner. 
And when you come to verse 8, after David has come out of hiding, where he was, staying away from Saul for the sake of his life, where we read in verse 8 that there was war again. And without explanation, without hesitation, we just simply read that in the midst of war, and David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. He went right back to work. He kept his commission. He maintained his calling as a defender of the people of God, as a prototypical, a forerunner, if you will, redeemer. He kept the enemy at bay and didn't allow them to touch even one hair upon the heads of the people of Israel. And it makes very much sense if you place yourself in the shoes of David to simply say, how in the world is that possible? Your kings tried to kill you three times. The enemies are at the gate. Doesn't it make a whole lot of sense to simply back away and let the Philistines do the work for you against Saul? That would be one method of dealing with a crazy king out to kill you. Another would be to simply say, well, sorry, Saul, I'll tell you straight to your face. I won't just let it seem like an accident. I'm not going to fight for you. You want me dead. Is this another plot that you've hatched? And to be suspicious of the motives of the king or even the circumstances that he finds himself with. How could you fight for a ruler that wants you dead? What should you do? How should you do anything? And how could David act in a manner in which he has? And some of you may be aware of something called the doctrine of lesser magistrates. Now, I could be speaking in a thoroughly Greek language to most of you. That could be the case. But if you're aware of this, uh, you may know where I'm going. Because it wouldn't be a terrible, a bizarre, or an abstract application of such a doctrine. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate states that when a superior or higher civil authority makes an unjust or immoral law or decree, the person of inferior or lesser authority has both the right and the duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. It makes good sense. It's the sort of thing that went into effect in the national military of Germany, very specifically after World War II, that whenever you have a superior command you to do wickedness, That you have not only a right, but also the duty to refuse a wicked command. But rightly understood, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates understands the right commands of God superseding. That they are greater than the inferior commands of an earthly king, ruler, or magistrate. It is more right to be obedient to God than to man in things where our consciences are being bound to do wickedness and sin. And you say, well, couldn't David just look at his king and say, Saul, you're a wicked man. I'm not going to defend you. I'm going to let things happen as they will. Hang by your own device Deal with it however you will. I will not be your champion. And I will say to you, no. 
This is different. Yes, Saul in his heart is immoral. Absolutely, he is murderously immoral. He is unjust in the things that he has done. He is just jealous, overwhelmed with a desire to have the popularity that David is enjoying. But the conscience of David is not being bound to do an unjust thing. He's not being called to do wickedly. He's actually simply confronted with yet another opportunity to fulfill his call from God to be a defender of the people of Israel. It is different. It would be a misapplication of the doctrine of lesser magistrates. And so David serves. David is an officer in the midst of the host of the armies of Israel. And he serves well. And he's victorious. Not because he's great, but because his God is great. And we again might say, well then how does David deal with Saul? How does he in himself understand what's happening to him? You and I just read a psalm together as a congregation in the context where David is finding himself with Saul. And I don't know if you picked up the theme, but God is the one who is great. God is the one who fights the battle. God is the one who delivers David. And in every case in the Psalms, we see the heart of David in his experience here. A subject of a wicked king who hates him. We also hear directly from David's mouth. 1 Samuel chapter 24, 6. May I never lift my hand against him. That's Saul. Since he is the Lord's anointed. That is also repeated and it's a constant doctrine for David. 26, 1 Samuel 26, 9. We're going to get to that probably next year. At this pace. David speaks to Abishai. What a great name, Abishai. He says to him, do not destroy him, that is Saul. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed And be guiltless. What is it that undergirds David? Why doesn't David take his skill that has defeated bears and lions, that defends the sheep, that strikes down Philistine giants, why doesn't he take his hand and extend it against this petty man who can't touch him, who at short distance can lob bolts at his body, javelins to kill him, With no success. Why doesn't David just take him out? It's because he fears God. It's the fear of the Lord that compels him. That his God is sovereign. And his God still has his hand upon Saul. Who was installed by his holy will in the midst of his people. May I never lift my hand against him. Since he is the Lord's anointed. Who is Saul's? To whom does he belong? And with whom is his superior found? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. God and God alone. That's the only one to whom David considers Saul directly, profoundly, and very personally accountable. That's significant. David repeats it again and again and again. It's never a thing where David takes up arms. He doesn't speak wickedly about Saul. Even, even in his psalms, 
David is controlled and directs his attention to his God. Now again, I want to say to you, you and I face a day where we have very wicked magistrates. We really do. And you may say, well, pastor, that's awfully political. You have no idea how I vote, and I'll never tell you. It's none of your business, as it is very none of my business to know how you vote. It's not political. It's just a simple assessment of the fact. We live in a day where infants are murdered, snatched from the wombs of their mothers, where children at young age are mutilated in their flesh, where people are distinguished against according to their gender and Uh, their own sexuality, the color of their skin, and every other thing, where you have magistrates who take for themselves feeding their own pockets while others are starving in the gutter. This is where we live, and it's the world in which we find ourselves, not only as individuals, but as a church. How do we face this? Do we then take up arms against the lesser magistrate? Do we become revolutionaries? Do we protest? Do we pick it with signs and shouts? What do we do? Well, I would suggest to you two very significant things that derive from a heart that fears God. The first of them is that we pray. That we pray for those whom the Lord has put over us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Prayer. Christians fight the battle of the world best on our knees. We protest most loudly as we plead with God. And we also take into our hands, as it were, in prayer, the greatest and most mighty weapon any person has ever wielded, and that is the heart of God for us. When you pray to God to turn the hearts of kings, kings who have weapons... Today of mass destruction, well beyond anything that you and I can or ever will possess, we have a God who has even greater power. We have a God that can turn all of those snares and pits dug for us back upon those who have set them as a trap for us. We pray. Prayer is not weakness. It is absolute power because of the one to whom it pleads with. It is God that you and I should be concerned with. The wickedness of a ruler does not then give us a right to disobey outright. The question is, are we being bound to take up and act with them of sin? Are we being forced to commit with them the atrocity? Every man, every woman has to ask the question in their own hearts, according to the scripture... And have that answer come in turn, but I want to encourage you very sincerely, Christian, that the first line, rather than just civil disobedience, is prayer. It's prayer. And why can we do this? It's the second thing that I want to encourage you. It is the fear of God. Do you fear God? 
The fear of God derives from his sovereign power. He controls all things. All things that come to pass are according to his holy and eternal decree. Nothing that happens is distant from him. It doesn't make God the author of sin far from it. However, we believe that God does control all things and even turns the wickedness of man to good. I want to also repeat to you that doesn't mean that there is never a time to come against an ungodly tyrant. I'm speaking very specifically about two things, prayer and the fear of the Lord. Our prayer is derived from the fear of the Lord. However, it is in our hearts a thing that we wrestle with. Do we tremble before the Lord, not calling any earthly leader an anointed as Saul was? Not at all. But nonetheless, having faith in God that there may be seasons and times where the Lord has placed over us leaders the sort of Cyrus, men that don't bow a knee to the God of heaven, yet are in power specifically for the benefit and the defense of the church. There is a time for all things. And this is something that the early church knew. If you read about the early church fathers and you read about the sufferings that they experienced at the hands of men like Nero and Diocletian, you read about these glorious martyrdom tales. Not that it is biblical, or binding. But I'll tell you about one brother who lived a long time ago, who was just like me and you and hadn't an authoritative word or an inerrant thought in himself, except for his knowledge of Scripture, a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. He wrote seven beautiful letters to friends in the church as he was taken in chains to be tortured and ultimately executed at the hands of the Roman government because he would not burn incense in worship of Caesar. What did he do? He prayed, he feared God, and he gave himself over into hands to suffer. One of his famous phrases is simply this, let my body be ground like holy wheat by the teeth of lions. You see, friends, we have a mighty God, a God that can allow us as Christians to endure even wartime seasons and horrific things, even atrocities and faith in him, simply knowing that if we do raise up arms with good reason, or if we rely on him on our knees in prayer, that our God will have his way, his will will out, truth will reign, he will always, always keep his church, he will always defend his people, we will always be secure even if the spears don't miss but plunge deeply into us, even if the flames overcome us, even if we do lose the battle and we're not great like David and we don't take down the Philistine and we don't dodge the attacks of an assailant, our God is great and our God is holy and he has all power and has also promised to raise us from the dead. You see, we're told in the scriptures that there will be voices from beneath the steps that cry out, How long, how long, O Lord? Well, that is not altogether distant from the experience of the church today, suffering at the hands of wicked and tyrannical leaders. We continue on in the text of scripture, and we're confronted with the broken vow of Saul and the reality that broken vows are a result of unmortified sin. So look at verse 6 with me. If you'll look back just a few verses. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. You may recall Jonathan rebuked him about the great acts of David. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore 
as the Lord lives. He, that is David, shall not be put to death. And scarcely any time later, just a few verses could be separated by days, could be separated by months, could be years. The text doesn't indicate it. We just read in verse 8, and there was war again, quite simply, and David has success. And this again is what has caused all of Saul's jealousy. The attention that David gets for the great deeds that the Lord has accomplished by and through him. He's overwhelmed. Look at David. He's done well. Verse 8, David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Saul's not really experienced very much like that. He certainly hasn't in any recent date. David is the champion. Is it likely that the people are singing the praises of David? Quite possibly. The text doesn't record it, but we know that they did once, and that affected David or Saul, that it sunk deep into him like thorns. And what do we see? Well, right on the heel of the great success of David, verse 9, a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. Overwhelmed, this unconfessed sin, the exposure that his sin has caused him to harmful spirits, to the mental, spiritual torment of unconfessed, unkilled, unmortified, unrepented of, jealousy, anger, all sorts of sins, malice, murderous rage, however you want to continue to go on and to explain it, that lays upon the heart of Saul with a spiritual authority. That's the picture being had. That this is not just a thing that's in Saul's mind, but rather it's also a thing upon his soul. And then we read that as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David, as he was playing the lyre to calm him, he's in service to the king, that once again, verse 10, Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, yet he eluded him. Now just put yourself in the shoes of David. How comfortable could he possibly be whenever Saul is raving mad? He couldn't be very comfortable. He's already been dodging missiles twice over. You might wonder as he's sitting there and saying, Okay, Saul, I see that you're, well, uncontrollable. Here you are on your throne. And, hey, buddy, don't throw that javelin at me again. We don't have any record of David's thoughts. It's only a guess at the experience of David. But nonetheless, there he is. He's in the room. And is the comment of Saul possibly, well, David, you see, I have to have this javelin in my hand just in case my enemies come over the wall and come at my life. Maybe an assassin could come in. Don't worry, David, it's not for you this time. Wink, wink, I promise. I promise I'm not going to throw my pitching arm out. Don't worry, we don't know. But one thing I think that we can say with some real and sincere assurance, is that this is yet again the result of Saul not dealing with his sins, his unconfessed sins, sins that he won't face in himself, sins that he will not hear the rebuke from other people regarding. He has heard it from Samuel. He's heard it from Jonathan. Undoubtedly, he's frightened other people regarding it. 
It's unmortified sin, sin that he hasn't put to death. He wants to kill David, but he doesn't want to kill his sin. A rage that overwhelms him to the point where the man who's there to serve him sincerely and to help him, he's the one that Saul wants to take his sin out on. And you say, well, you know, isn't this just a repetition of history? An abuser continues in his favored form of abuse. This just makes sense. We hear about this all the time. A man that beats his wife will probably do it again. A person that does this or that act of violence, this or that act of sin, unless he kills it, he's probably going to do it again. I'll say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Sin is pattern-based. Unless it's killed, it's probably going to continue. But one thing you should not look away from is that verses 8 through 10 have an additional layer added to it. That is verse 6. That is his vow. I mentioned it a moment ago. We even read it together. This vow that he made. Again, a vow is not just any promise. It's also not a passing comment. Vows are not low things. They are holy obligations. And you are wholly accountable to God for the commitment. And it seems, possibly, quite obviously at least, that Saul took it lightly because he transgressed it readily. No one will kill David. Yet in verse 10, he's eager to attempt it again. Broken vows come or are caused by or are related to unmortified sin. Would Saul have had it in his heart to commit this sin with an added sin of breaking a vow to God for the protection and the defense of David had he already killed the sin? No. No, he wouldn't have. Not likely. Not in this way if he did break it. This is disobedience with another disobedience. Sin begetting a greater sin, more and serious sins, even in the midst of this revisited sin. And so what am I trying to say to you, Christian? What am I having preached in my own heart? And that is this. You kill sin or your sin's going to grow and it's going to raise up other sins in your life. Kill your sin or it's going to kill you. The famous words of John Owen. It's very sincere, it's very simple, it's very obvious, and it's evidenced in the life of this wicked ruler, this jealous, pity, silly, dangerous, wicked man, Saul. Kill sin, or sin will have a compounding effect in your life to, to the point where in a moment you feel jealous of a man, the next moment you're overwhelmed by rage, your mind, your soul is attacked as a, like a wicked and an overwhelming harmful spirit has come upon you, and then you're going to act and act again and act in more significant ways. What are ways that this could be uh, otherwise understood? Well... Drink too much one time. You don't hold back. You give yourself into it. You've had a hard week. You just lean right into it. You drink one, you drink two, you drink seven. Well, I made a mistake, but I didn't confess it. I didn't kill it. I didn't cut it off. I didn't do anything serious about it. Soon enough, what do you find? You find not just one night a week you have a drink or two drinks or five drinks, but every night of the week and progressively you become... A raging alcoholic. That raging alcoholism then spills over into other things and you find your marriage is beginning to decay or your relationship with your kids is beginning to decay or your job is beginning to be affected. And again, one sin leading to another 
being greater and more serious sins as you revisit sins that you've not put to death. Maybe it's a a wandering eye. You see a beautiful young woman, young man pass. You let yourself linger a little too long. And you think, well, that wasn't good. I shouldn't have done that. But you don't put it to death. You don't put up barriers around yourself. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, your eyes are going everywhere after everybody all the time. And it's progressive. It's a slippery slope. It's not a fallacy, but the reality of the soul of man. And time after time you go and you find yourself not just thinking about other people, looking at other people, but dreaming about other people and eventually in the arms of other people. Kill sinner to kill you. Sins compound themselves. They uproot, they dominate, they in every way overpowers. But back to anger. What would have been good and healthy for Saul? What is good and healthy for you and I when we struggle with anger? The Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your sin. Give no opportunity to the devil. You have to deal with with your anger, you have to deal with your sin. Don't be content to play loose with things, Christians. Don't think it was just an isolated time. I won't do it again. Be eager to wage war against your sin. It takes repentance, and that repentance may mean cutting things off, taking things out of your life. Changing your lifestyle, changing the way you think. Openly confessing your sin, telling it to others and having others help you and to keep you accountable. It may mean repairing the relationship and doing better than just having Jonathan intercede for David, but rather going to David in full and complete brokenness of heart and seeking complete and total reconciliation with him or you with another person. Repentance is a significant thing, and it's a thing that if we don't take seriously in the life of our Christian walk, we could find ourselves once beloved of God, and then at another moment so far from him that we wonder where did we ever go as we ran from God, yet God remained the same. Don't play with sin. Don't play with sins, Christians. It's not a thing that could be taken lightly. Sin must be put to death. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, for the ancient history of your church. Lord, we thank you for King David, Lord, his faithfulness, Lord, his faith in your holy and sovereign hand, purposing his life and directing him and protecting him. Lord, we thank you that indeed uh, he is the one who gave us his much greater son, who, Lord, as you sent your holy son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and dwell among us. Father, we pray that as a church, you would help us to stand in this world, Father, in fear of you and in faith in you, O Lord, to deal with the things that come before us. O Lord, help us to tremble before your throne. O Father, help us to act rightly. Help us to act according to your word, to have courage when we should have courage also, to pray and to submit all things to you always. Our Father in heaven, we ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.